Hi, I'm Kim Payne, and you're listening to the Courageous Me podcast, which is all about inspiring you through incredible stories and sharing some really cool ways to add more courage into your life. Hi, it's Kim here. Just before you tune in, I need you to know this episode is a ripper, but the guest is an ex-policewoman, so some of the stories she shares about the cases that she worked on can get pretty gruesome. So I just need you to know that before you tune in. She does drop the F-bomb once or twice, and she does reference some of the work that she did, some of the situations that were pretty horrendous, and mental health, which became a really big part of her story, and the courage she's shown to try and normalize it and to make a big difference in this world. Welcome to another episode of Courageous Me, and you're in for a treat today. I have got the incredibly courageous ex-policewoman, Narelle Fraser, joining me. And I actually was lucky enough to hear Narelle speak at an industry, a financial services industry event recently, and I swear she had the room full of 250 women crying, laughing, killed over in hysterics, the whole gamut. So we've got her here today to find out about her life, which started off with 27 years in the police force. So Narelle, before we get into the juice of your story, can I just get you to share why you're excited to have this conversation about courage with me today? Thanks, Kim. Thanks for the opportunity. But probably that I might inspire uh, somebody that is thinking about I don't know, doing something they've never done or wondering whether they can do it because I began my um, speaking career at 55. So (laughs) it's never too late. (laughs) And uh, for all those people that think, you know, their career might have passed them by, don't think like that. And I, I really honestly believe if I can do it, anyone can because... Yeah, I just went out of my comfort zone. You know, it's funny. I don't know if I would refer to that as courage. Probably probably it is. But I went, boy, I went, <laughs> I went right out there. <laughs> but, you know, I get that a lot. I get, oh, yeah, but I just did this thing. And I don't know that I would call that courage. And yeah. yet everybody else listening in goes, oh, no, that's courage. And, I mean, starting a speaking career at any age can be extremely intimidating but yes. to start it at 55, I mean, that is that is really something. And I do want to dig into uh, yeah, what made you start a speaking career at 55. What is it that you felt compelled to share or to do that did that? But before we do, could you just give everyone a bit of background? Because I know that when I first heard that you were going to be speaking at this event, I, I didn't know a lot about you and I certainly don't where know a lot about you. Where have you been? Where have you been? I don't even watch a lot of cop shows on TV, so um, I'm totally in the dark. So for anyone else who's as ignorant as me, can you just give us a bit of a background as to who is Narelle Fraser and where did you come from? I come from a family of three girls. I'm the eldest. I've got two sisters who um, are uh, just amazing women themselves. I I come from a very, very... Uh, normal, I suppose, background, mum and dad. Uh, we grew up in Vermont in um, um, in Melbourne and my dad passed away when he was 51. Um, so mum brought up three teenage girls. Uh, I was 18, my sister 17 and my other sister 16. So I think I, I learned a lot about resilience and um, never giving up, I think, from my mum. I I probably look back and think my mum was very courageous. Like, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Mum had to, you know, work two jobs and recently widowed uh, to, you know, get us, uh, to keep us comfortable and safe and, you know, she was great support. But when I was, uh, I travelled around Australia in a combi. Uh, I was going to go just prior to my dad passing away, but when he passed away we had to put it off. But... Anyway, I travelled around Australia in a combi with some girlfriends and um, just had the time of my life. But when I came back, um, I think I just wanted to 
I felt I'd seen quite a bit of life and I, I, I don't know, I just wanted to help people. And look, I was walking through the city one day and um, Lifeline, I walked past Lifeline and I thought, I'd love to do that. And by this stage, I was a secretary and uh, I'd been a secretary for a long time because mum was, <laughs> Pitman shorthand, typing on a typewriter, you know, the old bang, bang, bang. <laughs> you probably wouldn't remember that, but, yes. Yeah, so, no, no, um, no, I did. <laughs> oh, my God. And, uh, yeah, so I thought, Lifeline, what a, a great job, uh, That what a great um contribution I suppose to society anyway so I worked at Lifeline for a while uh, for a couple of years but what really piqued my interest in policing was that um, with Lifeline the police would often call or we would have to call the police to say look we're worried about someone um, or you know somebody that was wanting to end their life all sorts of stuff and I thought to myself what a great job to be able to be with somebody, you know, maybe comfort them or stop them from doing something, but just to talk to people and, you know, show them that there are people around who want to help them. There is love and support. And anyway, so that's why I thought I'd love to be a policewoman. And that's why I ended up being a policewoman. And at the time, you know how things just seem to for whatever reason, they all sort of fall into place. And at the time, I was really fit. I was running. Um, So when I went through the police force, and this is at 27, I didn't know anyone that that was a police person. I was a real black sheep in that way. But from the minute I joined the academy, I just knew it was, uh, it was just felt right. I mean, I'd never, ever uh, experienced authority like that, you know, Fraser. Put your hat on. Fraser, get rid of those wispy bits beside you. You know, all that. I've never, ever had that authority and I didn't like it. But I knew that I had to get through that and I and I got through all the, like in the days when I joined, we had to do everything that the men did. Uh, there was no, oh, the women just have to jump over a four-foot fence. Uh, the men had to jump over the six. So we just had to do what everyone else did. But I loved it from the minute I joined. It was, um, oh. it's still, I still think uh, it's the best career in the world because it is a window to some really special things that you can do, but also a window to a lot of trauma, sadness and grief. It's a window to life, I suppose. But what a, what a beautiful connection you made there between doing the work at Lifeline and, and how you were able to help people. Seeing the role that then the police played in mm. that whole process and thinking, oh, yeah, that's my thing. So when you went through the academy, were there many other women doing it as well or were you one of very few? I was one of few in uh, our squad. We had quite a few women in our squad. We had uh, five in a squad of, I think, 30. But when I went out, you know, to my training station, which was St Kilda, when I went out there, I was one of very few women. And, in fact, this is 1987, so uh, there wasn't very many women in the police force at that point. It was a, you know, a pretty lonely job at times, to be honest, being a female. I can imagine because even growing up, never, ever, ever did I have a girlfriend once that said I want to be a policewoman. Like that just, it just wasn't even on the radar. It kind of wasn't even a thing. No. No. So so tell me about, you know, especially in those earlier years where you are, you said you started at 27. What was it like being a woman doing that kind of work with a lot of men around you? How did that sort of play out? You know, if I wasn't such... I must be strong. I don't see myself as strong in a strength, but I must be because I had to deal with a lot of very, very uncomfortable situations. I had to almost compress or suppress my emotional self because it was pretty tough. And I remember, I think I told this example at the function you were at, but I remember one of my first um, session on a div van, we were down, walk, uh, driving down Grey Streets in Kilda and there was lots of sex workers. In those days we used to call them prostitutes, but um, you don't, you, we don't do that now. It's poli- and, and fair enough too, it, 
it uh, conjures up conjures up terrible visions. But anyway, there was lots of sex workers, and I'd never seen one. Like I'd travelled Australia in this combi, and I thought I'd seen a fair bit of life, but what I saw at St Kilda was a life I'd never seen, and it was very confronting. And so with these sex workers, I actually felt sorry for them. Like, what are you doing selling yourself like this to people you don't... It just sort of really, it was confronting. Anyway, I remember on this shift, on this div van shift, I'm the passenger and the driver is a guy who's been in the job. He was in, we call it the job. He was in the, had been in the job forever. Anyway, we see a sex worker. It's fairly obvious that they're sex workers. And he said, uh, there's one, call her over. And so I wound down the window. I sort of yelled because across, excuse me. And he says, wind up the window. So I wound up the window and he said, don't ever speak to them like that again. And I didn't quite get what he meant. So he says, wind down the window. So I wound down the window and he says, hey, get over here. Oh, my God. It was just just the way that police men treated these women uh, and most of them were women, young girls, uh, some were young boys, but I saw another side to them and I used to think to myself, how does somebody get to that point? How do they get to the point where they are selling themselves for sex, for money? What could it, like I couldn't imagine uh, getting that low, you know, and getting that desperate. That started a lifelong passion with me to help as many people as I could because I wanted to know the background. Why were they there? What had happened? And most of them had been the ones that I spoke to. And I got quite a bit of respect, I think, from the sex workers because I, and I did genuinely care, but they would tell me stuff. Mm. And, you know, looking back, they would tell me most of them had been sexually abused or uh, just abuse when they were kids, they had been um, abandoned. Like they had terrible home lives. And I had such a lovely home life. I thought I am going to do everything I can for those those people and, you know, just help them rather than treat them like, sorry, but trash. Absolutely. Oh, and, and what, a, what a beautiful place, though, to come from and to actually listen to them. I'm sure there's not many people that would have done that in their entire lives. So... To have that, and I mean, this is kind of making you almost like a unicorn, right? You're, you're one, you're a woman. Two, you're emotionally intelligent, and three, you actually care, and you're showing you care. So, how was your behaviour then, and your approach accepted by you know, the others in your team and and the men around you? How no, did that go down? It was <laughs> no. It was like harden the fuck up, Fraser. Uh, I think you'd better take a, a teaspoon of cement and harden up. Come on, they used to call me phrase. I've always been called phrase, and it'd be a hey, phrase. Don't start that emotional crap. You know, all they wanted, all they wanted to do was uh, this is very police talk, but get the crook, get him back to the station, and what we call slot them, put them in the cells. They didn't care, a lot of them. I'm not, I'm making it out. This is 1987, 1988. This was, you know, a whole new, this was a, a policing that has changed a lot and it would need to. But they weren't interested. The majority of the men that I worked with weren't interested in why or how or who. They just, it's a, a sex work, a prostitute, charger, and then, off she'd go again and she'd go back down to the road and do it again. You know, so there was just no care. And also some of the behaviour that I witnessed, um, how offenders were treated, uh, would make me feel sick. Being an offender and being in a police station is probably the most vulnerable you will ever be. And a lot of policemen that I worked with took advantage of that vulnerability. I just saw a lot of cruelty, but also I experienced a lot of terrible stuff myself. You know, I've had a, a photo. We used to have to wear skirts initially. Um, pants came in in about nine. Can you believe that? Like like in, I think, about 19, well, I don't know, 89 or something, police women didn't have to wear skirts. We could actually wear pants. But when I was wearing a skirt, I had members 
you know, take a photo up my skirt. They had um, those um, what are those instant cameras. And so, and I can oh, always remember, yeah. I'm sorry to be, but this is mostly women that are listening, but I can remember one mm. time I had my period and I'd leaked. And, you know, they take photos and they put them up on the wall. Like it was humiliating. Um, they thought it was funny. I've been in a police station having dinner of a um, on night shift where they're, we all sort of come in for dinner if there's no jobs. Might put aside 10 minutes to throw something down. We'd all sit down and throw it down. And then out had come the porn movies. Like, And then these men were going and, you know, at that time of the morning, you would often have, working at St Kilda, you'd often have sex, sexual assaults reported. And it was just, if I didn't do this, who's there? Who is there to hold that woman's hand to say, look, I'm, I understand, or to take her for a medical, or just to care? And I thought I could have very easily said, you know what, this isn't for me. However, I'm making it out like it was terrible but there were so many good, good stories as well. It, it wasn't easy. But I love that you're sharing your version of it. Do you know what I mean? Like at no point does it even sound like, you know, there weren't other good people out there too, oh. but it's so beautiful to get your, like what would you do if when they would take a photo up your skirt and then put it on the flight? What, what did you do? How did you react to it? Did you take it to your boss or what did you actually do? That's no, horrendous. You know, that's interesting you say that. Uh, I, I was humiliated. I was very embarrassed. And, of course, to take it to my boss, he was half the time he was involved in it or even if he wasn't, that means that I'd have to talk about it. Uh, I'd be more humiliated. And also I just sort of felt I had to get through that because I think if I said something, it would have affected my career. Absolutely. And that's when I look back and think I wasn't courageous. In a lot of instances, I didn't say anything because I was so concerned about the effect it would have on my career or maybe the people that took the photos because everyone loved these people. Like, obviously, I'm not going to say who it was. I, I can... I know who it was. They were really popular members of the of the station, and been you know, and own or very few females. I just didn't feel I could say anything, and if I did, I'd be viewed as a I don't know a snitch or. So I just I feel I had to put a lot of that aside and just um, think I just I'm better than them, you know. I don't know. <laughs> But that's courageous in itself to realise that the time and place to speak up was not then. I mean, now if that kind of behaviour happened, it would, you know, we'd go like, why didn't you speak up? But if you wanted to do the work that you wanted to do, you realised that mm -hmm. by speaking out, you were going to impact your ability to do that work and to yeah. help the people that you wanted to. Did you, did you at least talk with your girlfriends or something about it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah, got yeah. A, yeah. A couple yeah. of really close girlfriends and my sisters. And all of them would, you know, often like, oh, my God, you joke. Oh, oh, uh, oh you've got to do this. You've got to do. Well, actually, they didn't actually tell me what to do, but they were just horrified. But also, I didn't want to say a lot because the police force was such a, the majority of police you work with are so good. And I didn't want to brand the police force as um, machoistic, which it was. But I wanted to portray it was a great job. But it's funny, now I can tell these stories because, you know, it doesn't affect my career. And it's lovely to be able to tell these stories because for 27 years or longer, 30 years, I've kept these stories to myself. And it's really nice to be able to talk about it openly. It's almost therapy, isn't it? Just being able to share and sharing with the disclaimer that, you know, you're not putting down what, you know, no. there is an element of the force that's amazing and they do amazing work. So, but, yeah. but to be able to sort of get that all out and share and you do it in such a, a light way, you know, we can understand the enormity of, of what you were sharing, but you also share it with a lightness that, you know, we can appreciate how far you've come on your journey, but what, and this is so courage, Narelle, like seriously, to have gone through now. this. I see it as weak. But you know, it's funny. I see yeah. it as weak and, and that's how I saw it 
at the time I felt I was weak because I wasn't speaking out. And also I had to suppress a lot of my emotions because they were seen as, you know, soft and fluffy and all girly. So a lot of times I had to suppress it. But now it's unleashed a beast. <laughs> yeah. And and to be honest, like, and love you to share some of the cases that you did share in the presentation. Where what I loved most was it was your emotion and your emotional capability was actually your superpower that say the others didn't have any maybe didn't change the outcome of what happened but it approached and went through it with so much more empathy and and yeah. consideration for the fact that these are human beings and some of I know some of the cases you shared were horrendous but can you just share maybe one or two that really stood out where your your emotional intelligence actually was your superpower and it was what was needed at the time to either solve a case or break a case or just give someone some dignity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. There are a couple that I shared at the, the function you're at, but one that I, I didn't share, which, you know, when I think of courage, I suppose it's probably one of the most courageous jobs I ever did, but it was um, a, a sex worker and we'd had dealings with her a couple of hours previous, I was working on the divan, it was night shift, I'm with a, a young trainee and I'm only in the job this stage, maybe say 18 months and I'm at Carlton and I'm actually a, a, a proper, I can't think of the word, um, an authorised uh, constable now, I wasn't a trainee, right? Anyway, so I'm with a trainee, which is pretty frightening, like considering I'm only in 18 months. Anyway, so uh, we're on the divan and we get a call for a woman acting a bit strange in a 7-Eleven on Rathdown Street. So we go there and she was acting very strange. And just the look of her, I thought to myself, I think you're a sex worker. And um, she had a bag with her and the attendant and thought that she'd pinch something. Anyway, I, uh, I said to her, look, would you mind if I just have a look in your bag there's a bit of concern that you may have taken something and she was just so open and um, I said, have you uh, have you been working or something like that? And she said, yeah, and I spoke like it was just so natural, you know, like oh, how, how was work tonight, something like that, right? We sort of connected. Anyway, I said, look, can I, her name was Julie, and I said, look, can I have a look in your bag, Julie? But, you know, I just need, anyway, so in her bag it confirmed to me that she was a, a working girl because there was all, you know, underarm deodorant, there was makeup, there was condoms, everything. Anyway, she had pinched something and I said, look, can we just put it back on the shelf? The, the attendant was fine with that and he said, I just want her out of my shop. So anyway, I said, whereabouts do you live? Because she was really upset. She'd just broken up with her boyfriend. Where do you live? And she said, oh, just around the corner. I said, hop in the back of the div van and I'll take you home. And she goes, really? Not back to the station? I said, no, I'll take you home. So I took her home, watched her go up the steps. Anyway, um, about an hour later, we had a call for a person on fire at a, at a um, petrol station in Rathdown Street. Anyway, we raced there. We were the first unit there and this person was writhing on the ground, screaming, and they were so badly burnt that you couldn't tell whether it was male or female. You didn't know. This, um, I'm not sure if it's courage. I don't think you think of it as courage at the time, but it's an innate thing. I just ran to them and they are in the gutter. I ran to them and I told my colleague, the, the trainee, I said, get an ambo, get the fireys, get a blanket. And there's everyone from the, the street is out watching and, you know, horrified. But it just, I just didn't think of that. I went straight to this person and I kneeled down and, oh, it was horrendous. But I remember this person opened their mouth and they said to me, Narelle, and I said, who is this? And she said, it's Julie. And I said, Julie, you know, what's happened? And you know, what she'd done is she'd gone back home, got a whole lot of aerosol cans, strapped them to herself, gone to the petrol station, threw petrol over herself and anyway, she died a couple of days later. But when I look back at me in the gutter, oh, it was horrendous. 
And all I can remember is her white, really white teeth, amazing, her really white teeth. And I asked a doctor afterwards, I said to him, how could she have, because I just couldn't understand, she was burnt to, right, you couldn't recognise. And I said, how come she could speak to me and she knew who I was? And he said that when you get burnt that badly, it burns your nerve endings. So oh, to a point, she couldn't feel um, a lot of the pain. Yeah, when I look back, I think that's probably one of the most, again, when we think of courage, I wasn't doing it to be brave. I was doing it because I just thought, my God, and this person needs necessarily me, but oh, this person needs someone, you know, to comfort them because I knew they wouldn't, you know, live. There are a lot of funny things that happen as well. I'm telling you some terrible stories. We'll definitely get to some fun ones. That's absolutely. What I love, though, is you cared. Like, Mm. yes, you've got a job to do, but, but you cared. You would have seen some some things that people would like. Even I remember when you were speaking on stage, some of the things you shared. It's like I couldn't even imagine that in a nightmare. Let yeah. alone this is your yeah. everyday life. But how did you every day still just seeing and being involved in such horrendous things, knowing that you know being emotional and all of that's not necessarily one of the skills that some of the other police force were equipped with. How did you get up and go to work every day? How did What kept you going back, even though there was some people, pretty ugly things? To help people like Julie. And I did forget to say one of the lovely things about this job was that when my colleague and I got back in the div van, we were really shaken and shocked. We held hands on the way back to the police station. We just held each other's hand in the car just as a bit of, well, I don't know, comfort or giving each other strength, I don't know. But I went back to the station and it was 7 o'clock in the morning so it was the changeover. I went upstairs, changed and went home. There was, in those days, there was no are you okay phrase. Boy, what a... Anyway, I still keep in contact with that man. We have a really special bond. I haven't seen him for years but I can tell you now I reckon if I saw him, I would end up in a ball of tears in his arms. <laughs> oh, that's gorgeous. It's just you do get up every day because, I don't know, it's like a, a bee to a honeypot with me. Like the more serious a job, the more I want to go to it, the more I want to help. I don't quite know what that means. I want to be there because I feel I know I'm strong in some instances emotionally. I feel that I can handle it. Everyone has a um, a limit <laughs> and I found my limit eventually. But the other thing I was going to say was um, one of them I shared with you at the um, function was uh, Maria Corp. Maria was um, married to Joe. Um, it was what they called the body in the boot case. In this case, Maria was married to Joe Corp she thinks everything's going fine. He says, I'm not really happy with our sex life. I want to spice it up a bit. How about we have a bit of a threesome? And she's horrified. But he said, we need this, you know, to keep the marriage alive. I'm getting a bit bored, whatever. So unfortunately, Maria agrees. They go onto a website. They meet a woman that is looking for a threesome. And surprise, surprise, Joe and this woman, her name was Tanya, they get to, during this threesome, obviously, there's a bit of a spark. Anyway, but what happens is that Joe doesn't, and he uh, falls in love, in lust, whatever you want to call it, with Tanya. Why doesn't Joe just say, darling, I, or look, Maria, I don't love you anymore. I love someone else. Uh, I want to, you know, leave you. But no, him and Tanya decide to murder Maria. I could talk for uh, hours on this job, so I'm obviously condensing a lot of it. But what they decide to do is um, murder Maria. So Maria comes down from the top of the house down to the garage one particular morning. She's there. uh, Tanya's in the back of the car. She chokes her, puts her in the back of the boot and drives to the shrine and just leaves Maria in the boot 
uh, for four days in the hot February sun. When we got, I was at the missing persons at the time, and when we got this job, we because Joe reported her missing, of course, the husband that was just beside himself, what's happened to my wife? She hasn't come. She didn't go and pick up our son at school all the time. He knows what he's done. I just don't know how you can do that. But anyway, we put out a media release. Anyone that sees this car, don't touch it because we needed it for an investigation anyway. A couple of days later, somebody found the car. And at that car, I was on duty this particular morning. It was a Sunday morning and I was at the car first with another colleague and we knew that Maria or somebody was in the car because the car was um, had condensation on the inside. And anyway, we found her in the boot. When we opened up the boot, oh, the smell was unbelievable. But there's little Maria. She's a tiny little woman and she's in the fetal position. She was really dishevelled for all intents and purposes. We believed she was dead. Again, it's like a bee to a honeypot. To see her in the back of that boot, so alone, so fright, obviously like dead, but I couldn't imagine the fear. Oh, it was a whole lot of things. My sergeant, sergeant that I was with, he, he said, well, by this stage, you know, everyone's come from everywhere. We've got ambulance on the way. We've got detectives coming from everywhere. I got in the back of the boot. With, he said, somebody's going to have to check that she's um, dead. And so I got in the back of the boot and I sort of like spooned her, I suppose, and you know, manoeuvred myself around to check here and check. Anyway, there was no signs of life. By this stage, I reckon probably three or four policemen, big tough homicide detectives, missing persons units, a couple of them have fainted, a couple of them are throwing up in the gutter. Like this is how bad the scene was. I was checking for signs of life and I was talking to her. Again, I knew she was dead, but I just... I don't know, just it's okay, Maria, you know, you're safe now. And and then on a bit of a whim, I've checked everything and she's dead. I can't find any signs of life. But I put my head somehow, I get my head onto her chest and I just look at her chest ever so slightly, just this tiny little rise. And I yelled, she's alive, she's alive. Anyway, I never, ever let go of her hand. She was unconscious. She was decomposing. She was in a terrible state. But I never let go of her hand. I held it all the way. I was with her all the way to the hospital and she never, ever regained consciousness. She died six months later in hospital. Oh, the investigation was enormous. Joe ended up ending his life the day of her funeral and Tanya became a prosecution witness. So she was able to tell us everything. All Tanya wanted was love and she was prepared to kill somebody and ultimately, you know, Maria died because of the injuries. That's hard to get your head around, isn't it? Oh, so hard to get your head around. Impossible. Like I did, I've heard you tell that story before. I'm hearing it again and it's like, oh, my God, I I'm, I'm feel like you're, you're reading something out of a novel and not a nice one. Yeah. And yet I know for a fact that this is this is real life. This is something that's so beautiful about you, Narelle, and you held her, you got in and did something that nobody else was prepared to do, but you did it without even thinking. I mean, this, this is courage seriously at another level. So how do you do things like this? Like what effect has that had on you? Where have you been left being on the other side of doing things like this for so long? And these jobs are just a smattering. I also was heavily involved for a lot of years in child abuse investigations, child exploitation. And with children, I'm not going to talk about it, don't worry, but with children, it just takes anything to another level. In the end, it was required to watch a lot of um, child abuse material for court purposes. And this particular day, I didn't know I was at the end of my tether but I just had a reaction that I've never had before. And this is in May of 2012. And clearly, looking back over the years, everything had just started to build up. Looking at this child abuse material, which in those days we had to, uh, there were 1,700 videos that I had to look at, videos, not photos. And I had a reaction I've never had before. I couldn't control my emotions and it was like, oh! <gasps> you know, like that. And I felt like I was going to be sick. And anyway, the next day I'll go back to work, you know, and another job comes in. It just keeps coming. There was a couple of signs or something's not right here. You know, I was feeling very, very overwhelmed. I couldn't um, concentrate. I was very angry. Like I'm not an angry person, but 
I was that angry. I just, I couldn't control it. All the jobs were coming in and it was like I banged the phone down and, pardon me, another fucking phone call. Yeah, just doing banana. I thought, you know what, something's not right. Oh, and I was shaking a lot. I had, my body was just falling apart looking back, my mind and my body. Mm. I had terrible, uh, constant, almost chronic diarrhoea, which I was trying to hide. I was trying to hide all these signs and fighting with myself thinking it's okay I'm just a bit tired you know anyway I um, ended up going to the doctor and but I pretended that everything was fine for I don't know maybe four or five months after that reviewing of child abuse material Mm. anyway the doctor said I think you've got PTSD I didn't even know what it was I had to look it up and when he told me what it was I remember him saying that's feelings of helplessness horror uh, nightmare. It just went through the whole lot. And I remember in my mind thinking, yep, yep, yep. That day I went to the doctor. He gave me two weeks off. I never went back. I think I just, never. I was so traumatized. I was so damaged. I didn't realize how sick I was. I told the doctor about an incident only the week before or something about being in court and not knowing where I was and not doing my job. You know, I'm having a coffee when there's I'm in charge of a court case and anyway it was an amnesia event it was like my mind had just stopped and he said you'll end up in hospital if you don't do something and I thought nothing is worth that I realized the longer I was away from the office and the people well I wouldn't say the better I got because for 18 months I really really struggled I, I couldn't look at a police car I couldn't go out of the house in fear of seeing just all these flashbacks and triggers, like just to see a little kid that all come back to what I'd seen and, God, I was a mess. Mm. But anyway, the longer I was away, the better I got. And, and, and that's, that is a very, very long introduction to how I became a public speaker. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Narelle, I need like 10 hours with you. I don't know how, how this is going to even come across in such a short time. You've had to leave a job that you've loved for really, really good reasons. I'm assuming that when you've been diagnosed with something like that, you never completely are cured of it, but you learn how to manage every day without it being in your face. How do you then go and decide, well, what am I going to do next? Because you're reasonably young, right? So I've still got to go and have a career. I've got to do something. Knowing that you're such a helping human, what did you do? What was that process? How did? Where did you go from there? Well, uh, work cover. Uh, isn't it funny? I feel ashamed to say that I went on work cover because I feel like again, it's a sign of weakness. But I was just so sick, you know. In the end, I was just being directed, I suppose, by the work cover people and psychologists, psychiatrists to help. And I did everything I could that all the professionals said because I wanted desperately to get back to work. That was my initial thinking. And what happened? Back as a cop? Yeah, yeah, because I missed oh, it. Oh, you thought you actually go back? I don't think I knew, well, what am I going to, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'll ever be able to not go back. Even realising that it had made me very sick, I'm thinking, oh, maybe I could, I don't know, work on the watch house. Maybe I could do filing. I don't know. In the end, I realised, no, because somebody can come into the watch house with, you know, for instance, I've lost my phone or I've lost my purse, or they can say I've just been raped, you know. So in the end, I realised I couldn't go back. But this was in those initial periods. But what work cover did do, I went to the Austin Hospital um, for a PTSD course for police and that was a game changer because that made me realise how sick I was and how bizarre and silly it would be to go back to policing because it made me realise how sick I was. And I reckon it took me 18 months to actually accept that I had a mental illness. To get over that you know, barrier, that stigma, it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. You know, what are people going to think of me? All that sort of stuff. Ridiculous. And that's why we have to stop this stigma attached to mental illness, right? During all these um, professional visits, WorkCover said, why don't you go to a, we'll send you to a vocational guidance counsellor to see what else you can do. 
And I thought, what a waste of time. Anyway, I thought, oh, I'll just do what they say because I'd done everything else they'd said. So off I go to the vocational guidance counsellor. And again, it was a game changer because what she did was we sat down and she said, so tell me what you like doing. What's important to you? What do you think your skills are at the time I, I, I couldn't think of any skills I had like who else needs to know how to run an operation order or how to um, you know write up a search warrant like I just couldn't think of the skills I had anyway she helped me in starting to think about maybe sharing talking I mean clearly I like talking but she she worked on those skills I had and she's the one that suggested, why don't you think about sharing your your experiences and mental health and all that sort of stuff? Anyway, I ended up going, I had a terrible fear of public speaking, terrible. With her help, I thought maybe I could conquer that fear while I'm sick, while I'm off sick. Maybe I could do a course or something in public speaking to try and conquer that fear because I felt I had the stories. I feel I had the right sort of personality, you know, all these sort of things. I felt I had a lot of the attributes but I didn't know what to do with them or how to use them. Anyway, I ended up going to Toastmasters, which is a a public speaking. It gives people ideas on how to do public speaking. And I was, oh, my God, the first couple of times I was nearly sick with um, anxiety and stress and everything. But after a while, a number of people said, oh, Narelle, I think, I think you're onto something here. And that's how it all started. And now you can't shut me up. But I think that's so lovely that you've gone from the life you've had thinking, but what else can I do? I mean, you can type, I believe, from your first part of the story. Yeah. But, like, what else am I going to do? But the story that you've gone and again, you being a public speaker, sharing the story that you share helps people. It helps. So you're helping people again. Yeah. Getting past something that is quite horrific. So tell me about a couple of your first presentations when you're on stage. So what did you oh. do? If, you know, you've got this fear. How did you work through it? What did you do? Because a lot I of people learned, have the same fear. I, I learned a lot of just those little one percenters. For instance, um, I and I still do. I still write out everything almost word for word because what happens with PTSD is that it does affect your memory. And so often I won't be able to think of a word. I used to get all, you know, oh, my God, I can't think of the right word. I find that if I write everything down and just sort of every now and then glance, uh, I don't lose my way because I can go off on a lot of tangents, if, just in case you haven't noticed. And so I find that by writing it, it gives, it's like a security blanket. So I write it down word for word, and I used to practice it day in and day out before my first couple. I'd practice it, I'd put the radio on, um, I'd have loud music so that I got used to distractions, just little things like what to do, like Toastmasters taught me. I never knew what to do with my hands. They taught me about not going from side to side on a stage. They used to have this wanky expression about owning your space, seriously. But anyway, and it's about staying there rather than walking from one side to the other of the stage because it's distracting what to do with your hands being a bit more natural like if you forget a line instead of thinking to yourself oh my god I'm going to make such a dickhead of myself you go oh my god like and make a joke of it sort of you know like well well that's PTSD or you know I'm 64 or I don't know but just being a lot more confident in the fact that I am not perfect. I do make mistakes. I do forget my lines, but you never, ever forget the stories because they're real, you know. So I'm, and I think people see genuineness. They can see through somebody that may talk about a job that they really didn't have anything to do with. I think I just worked on, I didn't need to bring in other people's stories. I had my own. And, uh, oh, sorry, and just another little thing, you know, like with Toastmasters, they taught me about, you know, sometimes when people have got notes and they drop them, they go all over the place and like panic stations. But what they taught me was to number the pages up the top. So if you do lose them, you know, or they fall up, you know, you know where they are. 
all these little things. And what they did was they just gave me that little bit more confidence. I remember years and years ago, I went to see, when I was a secretary, I organised this conference. I was a, a PA for a you know, fairly important person. I had to organise a, a function, a weekend away, a sales meeting, which is really just a, an excuse for booze up. But anyway, guest speaker was Max Walker. I will remember that till the day I die because I felt like I was in Max's lounge room and we were just sitting there having a, a bit of a yarn. Anyway, now when people say to me, I feel like you're just a girlfriend that I'm just having a chat to or something, right? You could not give me a better compliment. I think, thanks, Mr. Walker, <laughs> because because that's just, I th- and, and people say that a lot, but it's just, and that gives me such a thrill because I think to myself, my God, you know, when I left policing, I was just a shell. You know, I had no confidence. I Oh, it was awful. And now people say all these nice things and I think it's pretty damn good. (laughs) But, you know, that's one of the things I loved about you was, one, I thought your stories were hilarious and there were a couple of times where you you could see you couldn't remember the words, so you just made one up. (laughs) Like, and it was just, it felt so real and so natural and, yes, you know your stuff, yes, you know your stories, but it didn't feel rehearsed because it was just so real and I know at one at one point during the event someone came up and gave you a glass of wine so you're like yep great having a sip is like oh this woman's cool I love this and what's so beautiful is it meant that your message stuck like your message stuck more than if it was all polished and perfect and you didn't forget anything or you didn't have a giggle or you know you're just so natural which means helping others becomes so much more magnified because you get so much more out of it. Like I, I literally was, you know, only five, ten minutes in, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm already loving this. Like you're just so good at what you do. And what I love though is that this wasn't natural for you. You had to learn it. But you're able to then bring that natural gorgeous, like you've got a really good personality and you're able to bring that through and make a bigger impact by doing it. Mm. Oh, it's absolutely gorgeous. Do you you still get nervous before you get up on stage? Yeah, Yeah. in fact, I find that I don't really want to talk to people. Like at that function I was on a table, I find I just want to be somewhere, just, you know, get my head gone maybe for just five minutes. Anyway, I left the table. It's probably rude, but I think, you know what? So I left the table and I just went outside and sat outside for five minutes. Just, I don't know... (laughs) If it's, well, I am nervous, but I also, it's amazing, but I look forward to it because I am spreading such an important message with a bit of humour. It's not all doom and gloom. You know, we have a few laughs, but I think when I see the responses that yourself and other people there have from my presentations It's worth everything that I do, every practice session. I mean, I I do work hard at appearing natural (laughs) and I think I am to a point. But, you know, a lot of work goes into, you know, I go over the stories a lot. Yeah, anyway, it's um, a huge compliment to have people like yourself say those things because it is, it has not come easily. Yeah, but you make it look so easy. And, you know, there's so many women that I've either had on the podcast or that I've worked with or I coach and, They've all got incredible stories to share as well and their next step is to get on stage and be able to share it. But to get past that anxiety or that, oh, my God, but I'm not a speaker, I'm not a speaker, and go, no, I am a speaker because the story I need to share can help so many others and that has to be bigger Mm. than the fear of actually getting on stage. And and that's what you just bring to the table. So, Mm. oh, my God, I seriously want to talk to you forever. What's your next big courageous move? What's the next thing in your life that you've got to reach in and find more courage to actually do? What does that look like? I just want to continue. I want to talk to anyone and everyone about mental health, the importance of not ignoring the signs because I did and I lost a career out of that because I put my head in the sand. It is actually a strength 
to acknowledge that something is wrong and to seek help. It's not a weakness, which is what I had thought for most of my career or most of my life. Put your hand up, go and see somebody, talk to somebody, do something. Don't ignore the signs. And you know what? They were there. I'm looking forward to just spreading more cheer and inspiration, motivation about mental health and we have to normalize it not stigmatize it that is beautiful at the same time by starting a speaking career at the age of 55 you're able to get that message out to so many more people sometimes I wonder you know like and with my podcast I can't get over the range of people like I would have thought at 55 you're pretty much I'm not saying done and dusted but you're you know in the you're getting up there but I have so many young people that listen to my podcast and I've just oh the some of the messages I get are so beautiful and so inspiring I think my god if I can inspire a a 16 year old to do criminology which I have just recently I think you know what that's that's what I want you can do anything Oh, I love it. And just quickly tell me about your podcast. What's it called? Narelle Fraser Interviews. We just explore the human side and the impact of crime. So I talk to anyone about anything crime, psychologists, uh, witnesses, victims, police. I talk to a lot of police. Yeah, so NFI, Narelle Fraser Interviews. I love that. I remember when you said NFI and it's like, oh, my God, I tell that to my my sons when they misbehave or they ask me something I can't answer. So very, very, very cool. Uh, Narelle, if anyone wants to find you, obviously they can search up Narelle Fraser Interviews on uh, podcast platforms. How else can they find you? Because I'm sure there's going to be plenty of people that want to reach out and get you speaking to their crews, their groups, their stages, whatever it might be. Just where, um, where, where should uh, I go? My website, narellefraser.org. Beautiful. And I'll pop those in the show notes. You are one of the coolest women who is so courageous and so caring. It's off the charts. Thank you for sharing with me today and to spreading more goodness coming from a place of courage that you've been doing for pretty much your entire life. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kim. Thanks a million for joining me on this episode of Courageous Me. I hope it ignited a spark or two within you. To keep the inspiration flowing, hit that subscribe button and stay tuned for more episodes. We've got loads of amazing stories of courage, passion and practical tips coming your way. For all the show notes, resources and ways that we can connect, head to courageousme.com.au. And your feedback is incredibly valuable. So if you enjoyed the show, I'd love you to leave a review and a rating. It'll help me spread more of this love and reach more wonderful people just like you. Until we meet again, my friend, always remember, you've got this.